the ambulances, anybody that needs emergency service have to go all the way to Kamloops now. Our healthcare system's sort of crumbling. Now on the news hour, no ambulance in sight for an infant. The tragedy in central BC putting renewed pressure on the province. Plus, he was punched, he was kicked, he had drinks thrown on him. Um, and again, people were just standing by. The search for multiple suspects after another vicious, hate-fueled attack on the streets of Vancouver. And... <laughs> Historic homecoming, why the Stanley Cup's Canadian tour is leaving a lasting legacy. Hit by tragedy. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. An infant is the latest patient in this province left to wait for far too long for potentially life-saving care. A baby in Barrier died earlier this week after suffering some sort of medical event, with the closest ambulance tied up too far away to respond in a timely manner. Kristen Robinson has our top story and the calls for immediate action to the province. 64 kilometers north of Kamloops, Barrier has a population of just over 1,700. The district has had 24-hour full-time ambulance coverage since last summer, when following the heat dome, the mayor says the province switched Barrier to a 24-7 alpha station, requiring paramedics with a higher level of training. The problem, they couldn't hire enough to fill the gaps. Our paramedics are really overworked. You know, understaffed. If your health isn't good and the ambulance isn't available, it's a little scary. I just can't fathom how this can happen in today's world. Global News has learned a child under 12 months old went into cardiac arrest in Barrier Thursday. An ambulance was called and the union says there was a delayed response. The infant did not survive. In this situation, any delay in a critical situation like this is fundamentally wrong. BC Emergency Health Services is reviewing the call but refused to say how long the response time was or explain the reason for the delay. The paramedics union says if the two stations in Kamloops are busy or short of ambulances, barrier paramedics can head south. From what I understand is reported on this day is that they were uh, called into Kamloops to assist with calls and uh, coverage in Kamloops as opposed to staying in barrier to make sure they had coverage there. And that's not right. We need our Alvin service to be there to be able to to uh, protect the people and when we need it and not just to steal our resources so that they can go to a larger center. We need to address the staffing issue so that we don't have these scenarios anymore. Troy Clifford says his members are devastated. The mayor, meantime, says his community has to lean on first responders. Maybe rely on our, our, our volunteer firefighters. And in, in a lot of cases, just throw that person in the back of the vehicle and head to the hospital, just like we did 50 years ago. We're really, really worried. We don't know when barriers going to get back to normal. And it's the healthcare system that's uh, lagging. We're struggling with it. Kristen Robinson, Global News.
And as we know, the staffing shortage is province-wide, and we're learning just how short-staffed the ambulance station is, about 90 minutes from Barrier in Ashcroft, where two residents died in less than a month after waiting nearly half an hour for paramedics to arrive in both cases. The rural village west of Kamloops has a population of 1,800. Global News has learned the Ashcroft ambulance station would normally have nine full-time paramedics and approximately 15 part-timers. Currently, there are only three full-time paramedics and four part timers. Four full-time positions are vacant and two full-time paramedics are on leave. Earlier this month, 84-year-old Jerry Spooner, who lived within sight of the ambulance station, suffered a cardiac arrest and died after waiting 28 minutes for an ambulance. In mid-July, a woman who suffered a heart attack, also within sight of that ambulance station, died after waiting nearly 30 minutes for paramedics. BC Emergency Health Services says 75% of its regular full-time and part-time positions are filled and it's recruiting 25% of these positions to help fill remaining vacancies across the province. Now to a vicious assault on a gay man believed to be motivated by hate and homophobia during Vancouver's Pride Week that's just now coming to light. Vancouver police releasing disturbing footage of the attack as they work to track down the swarm of young people caught on camera kicking and punching a stranger while purportedly using homophobic slurs. As Amadagahi explains, while the victim will recover from his physical injuries, he's been left traumatized. The incident you're seeing happened almost one month ago, with Vancouver police only now releasing video and details to the public of what they are investigating as a hate crime. This is another another disturbing incident that was unprovoked, and we do believe that it was motivated by hate. Uh, this happened during Pride Week, and um, I understand that the suspects did utter some homophobic threats to the victim. The security video is from July 31st in the early morning hours after midnight. The victim you see jumped, tackled to the ground and repeatedly punched and kicked was coming home from celebrating Pride downtown. Police say the 42-year-old victim was involved in what they are only describing as a verbal confrontation inside a convenience store on Vancouver's Commercial Drive and 10th Avenue. It was actually shocking, but it was not surprising. You know, society has a long way to go. I mean, it's politically incorrect to be homophobic or transphobic, but the, I feel the feelings and um, those beliefs of hatred are still there. Alex Sanga is the founder of a local charity for queer South Asian people and says incidents like this, if in fact proven to be hate-motivated, can be mentally destructive to members of the LGBTQ2S plus community. It, da it damages and de it destroys your self-esteem, your self-confidence, and your self-identity. If you're a gay person going into society and you're being bashed for who you are, something that you have no control over, something that, something that God has created you to be who you are, and you're being persecuted and punished and your physical safety is at stake, I mean, how is a person supposed to feel good about themselves? Police say the people seen in the video appear to be in their early 20s. We need these people to come forward and we need people that stopped and watched to also come forward so we can get a, a full picture of what happened. Adding assault charges could be considered, but investigators will first need to identify and speak to everyone involved. Imadagahi, Global News.
And Mounties are looking for a suspect involved in another random attack involving a machete in the Fraser Valley. Chilliwack RCMP say a man was hit with a machete near Meadowbrook Drive early Thursday morning. The attacker, a man, brandished the weapon before slicing the victim in the head. The 37-year-old victim was rushed to hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. Police say the victim and the suspect did not know each other and this attack is also believed to be unprovoked. The suspect is about six feet tall with a stocky build and dark hair. He has a tattoo on his right shoulder, possibly of a crest or a sword. He was last seen wearing a white tank top and black and white high top shoes. We're looking to speak with anyone who witnessed the attack, including anyone living on Meadowbrook Drive who may have relevant surveillance footage. A drive-by shooting in Kamloops has left one man dead and another injured this weekend. RCMP responded to calls of a shooting at around 10.30 last night on Ord Road near Sing Street, where two men who had been shot inside a vehicle. The driver was pronounced dead at the scene while the passenger was rushed to hospital in stable condition. Investigators are now trying to determine if a vehicle fire in Rayleigh at 2 o'clock this morning is connected to that incident. Police add the victim who died is well known to them. The victim and the shooting is believed to be targeted. The family of Trina Hunt has renewed a $50,000 reward for any new information leading to the arrest and conviction of her killer. The Port Moody woman was reported missing by her husband on January 2021. Her body was found in Hope, south of Silver Creek, two months later after an extensive search. The integrated homicide investigation team has ruled her death a homicide. Hunt's family points out Trina's husband, Ian, and his father, Dennis, have chosen not to contribute to the award. Anyone with information on Trina's death is asked to contact IHIT. Parts of the province are now sitting under elevated drought levels due to the ongoing stretch of hot, dry weather we've seen all month. The Forest Ministry says eastern Vancouver Island, western Vancouver Island and Haida Gwaii are now classified as drought level 3. The province says soaring temperatures, sunshine and no rain have increased water temperatures in numerous streams in those regions as well. They add the warmer water temperatures and the lack of precipitation may affect late summer fish rearing conditions in streams and the timing of salmon spawning migration. That warning follows reports of fish mortalities and strandings in the past month following heat warnings. Angling closures are in place for most of eastern Vancouver Island streams until at least Wednesday. It's been a busy 24 hours for first responders in the Okanagan with multiple rescues, missing people and a possible drowning. Victoria Famia has more on the weekend that is running rescuers off their feet. It was a dangerous evening in the Okanagan on Friday when emergency crews from both Vernon and Kelowna were called out to a number of tasks. The first call was around 30. Kelowna RCMP responded to a report of a man who went into Okanagan Lake at McKinley Landing and never resurfaced. Crews were searching throughout the evening but were unsuccessful. Central Okanagan Search and Rescue returned to the area early Saturday morning to continue that search. The Coast Guard was called out last night by the RCMP to assist in looking for a missing male. Um, so we spent the last two hours last night between 7 and 9 searching the McKinley Landing area and then we're out first thing this morning at 7 a.m. During the day, COSAR had a helicopter out getting an aerial view of the area the man went missing. The helicopter is used for an overview and uh, to see if maybe the uh, subject is around closer to the shore that we can't get in and walk. It's a very rocky area out there. There's a lot of docks, but there's a lot of drop-off cliffs too. 
Vernon Search and Rescue had been called out to assist at McKinley Landing, but they stood down while COSAR conducted an air search. However, they had a busy night of their own with three separate searches on both land and water. So about uh, seven o'clock, we received a phone call from Vernon RCMP. A witness had reported a sailboat that uh, was partially sunk out uh, towards the Ellison Park area. We responded to that call and we were about 20 minutes into it and we received a second call for a missing person in the Vernon area. Members of VSAR attended the missing person's call, but shortly after were told by Vernon RCMP that the individual had been located and they can stand down. Around that time, they also determined that the sunken sailboat was abandoned and no injuries or issues were reported. So we completed that task and just Back to the, the Vernon Yacht Club, the marina, we got a third call. And uh, that was for another missing person in the Vernon area. So we responded to that. Uh, we were stood down approximately one o'clock in the morning. And uh, just that's pending further investigation from the RCMP. Kelowna RCMP confirmed the report of a possible drowning in Okanagan Lake, but have yet to release any new information. Victoria Famia, Global News. A new survey suggests the job action by the BCGEU is having a major impact on the liquor and hospitality industry. The BC General Employees Union set up picket lines at four liquor distribution warehouses on August 15th. Since then, the supply of liquor and cannabis has been steadily dwindling. And a new survey shows out of five hospitality businesses are now worried about their viability as a result of the strike. The survey was conducted in the past week by the Alliance of Beverage Licensees. I knew it was getting bad. Uh, we've been hearing about that for a while, and I'm sure customers out there have noticed the, the product shortages are appearing on shelves, particularly imported products and those ready-to-drink beverages. Um, but I, I was surprised how frightened people are uh, and, and how deep it has spread. And it, it just goes to show that this strike is having serious impacts on our industry, and, and that's why since it started, we've been begging them to, to stop the strike or find a different way of protesting. Coming up, raising awareness of another deadly epidemic. We couldn't get much help during COVID with the recovery and the resources that were out there. Honoring loved ones lost to a poisoned drug supply as the opioid crisis continues to claim lives. Plus. Open for business, a barbershop in Chinatown swings open its doors in style. We'll take you there just after the break. Stay with us. For years, a growing number of BC families has experienced the painful loss of a loved one to the poisoned drug supply crisis. And in Port Moody today, it's hoped that hearing some of the stories behind that exponential increase in overdose deaths will help bring an end to the crisis. Travis Prasad reports. It's been almost two years since Harley died at just 31 years old. Managing pain from a serious car crash led to prescribed opioids, then fentanyl. He was using Oxycontin for a couple of years, um, and then slowly, I think it was kind of like they just took it away, right? So then that's when he started being really experimental with drugs and pain and became addicted. Vicki Cartwright is sharing her son's story in Port Moody where the Tri-Cities Overdose Community Action Team is marking International Overdose Awareness Day. So this temporarily reverses those overdoses. From lessons on how to administer naloxone to a mobile youth outreach centre, the community is doing its best to keep people informed. With that awareness, hopefully breaking down some stigma so more people will talk about it. 
because we think that if people are talking about it, if they're educated about it, uh, people will be able to come forward and feel safer and more comfortable to come forward and ask for help when they need it. In 2016, BC declared the toxic drug supply a public health emergency. Since then, it's taken more than 10,000 lives. And it's only getting worse. 2021 was a record year for overdose deaths, and 2022 is on pace to beat it. Advocates driving home the point, the toxic drug crisis does not discriminate. It's hitting people in every corner of the province, of all ages and backgrounds. Giving more people toolkits on how to have these conversations is really important. Um, and I think especially for parents who are raising teenagers right now, parents need to have the knowledge and the education and the awareness that isn't fear-mongering but fact-based. The narrative for so many decades has been that people who use drugs are bad people and we have to change that narrative. They are people very deserving of help and support. Cartwright now advocates with other moms who've lost children pushing for a concrete plan with evidence-based treatment and recovery options. What is it going to take, you know, to the number gets 20,000? Um, we just need to do something. We need to educate and look at it differently. So it's asking the government to really step up to the plate. Travis Prasad, Global News. A local business that recently set up shop in Vancouver's Chinatown celebrated its grand opening in style today. The Han Sing Athletic Club performing a traditional lion dance in front of Private & Co., a barbershop and clothing store on East Pender near Carroll Streets. The owners, one of whom had a previous barbershop in Chinatown, returned last month, hoping to help revive the historic neighborhood. The building is owned by one of the Chinatown Society Associations. Its ground level had been sitting empty since the Peking Lounge Furniture Store closed in 2015. Land dance, traditionally, it means like uh, in here to bring in the energy and uh, bring prosperity into the store. And then with the firecracker and all this, uh, it will keep all the evil away. It's really rare for the last two years. And uh, with this happening, I hope that you'll see more of this happening and more store open and bringing more people to Chinatown. Coming up, responding to the call. It was uh, a call out to people from all over the world to come help. How a group of local heroes is sending humanitarian aid to Ukraine. Plus, how the simple act of getting a good night's sleep can help you ward off a heart attack. We'll tell you why. That's after the break. It has been six months since the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the efforts here in B.C. to support those who stayed behind persist. For weeks now, volunteers across Metro Vancouver have been gathering supplies, all to pack into a shipping container in the Fraser Valley that is destined to help those in the war-torn region. Paul Johnson reports. 35 kilos on that, and, and that bed's going in. Yeah. If you follow the news about Ukraine at all, You'll know that since the war started, Canadians have gathered and shipped a river of supplies to the battlefields and to Ukraine's overwhelmed institutions. What's happening today is we're, we're figuring out exactly what needs to go directly um, by shipping container. In a donated space on an Abbotsford farm Saturday, we caught up with John Lowe, a military veteran of Afghanistan, He's now a walking example of Canada's aid movement for Ukraine. He's personally delivered suitcases full of expensive items to the country. 
Now he's quarterbacking the loading of this 40-foot container, set to ship out Monday. One of the things I realized really quickly is, is their equipment is, is uh, incredibly outdated. While Ottawa has supplied some weapons, Canada's just not in a position to send something like Javelin missiles. So more and more, it's looking like our legacy will be things like this. Striker hospital beds, advanced first aid kits, even an ultrasound machine. Some of it bought, much of it donated. Since the war started, this is going to be my third, fourth container. For years before the Russian invasion, retired businessman Roman Sawicki had been shipping supplies to Ukraine. So he had a network of contacts in place to move things swiftly, which is another part of Canada's aid story. Much of it is people-to-people, self-organizing, online. Sawicki says ordinary Canadians are making as meaningful a contribution as any other country. I can't think of another country that can come close to what Ukraine, what Canada has been sending. Sawicki says there are no fewer than 50 hospitals in Ukraine right now working with Canadian-sourced supplies. This batch will go to Halifax, then Poland. Much of it will end up near the Ukrainian front lines. In Abbotsford, Paul Johnson, Global News. Across the border, a fast-moving brush fire in Spokane, Washington, has prompted evacuations tonight. The blaze broke out near a school on Friday afternoon. It has since grown to more than 16 hectares in size. Dozens of crews are fighting the flames with the help of more than a dozen aircraft with all available resources deployed to fight it. A Red Cross shelter has been set up for evacuees. A lot of Canadians have been wondering about any possible relief from the soaring cost of living. But if you look across the border, there does not appear to be any relief anytime soon with inflation at its highest level in four decades. In an eye-opening speech considered his most important so far this year, the U.S. Federal Reserve chairman warned there's going to be more pain before things get better. And consumers will be taking that hit. Jennifer Johnson has more. With prices skyrocketing on just about every consumer good, from groceries to gas, Americans are desperate for relief. But it won't come anytime soon. The Federal Reserve Chair is warning there will likely be more interest rate hikes next month to try and stabilize the economy. Restoring price stability will take some time and requires using our tools forcefully to bring demand and supply into better balance. They will also bring some pain to households and businesses. With that news, Wall Street immediately tanked. Small business owners are feeling the pain too, even places like ice cream shops, because dairy prices are higher than ever. We have to pass that on to the consumer. We can't absorb all that, you know, as a, as a company and, and be able to, to stay afloat. The Federal Reserve has already raised interest rates twice since June. Financial experts say now is the time to try and pay down what you owe. You really want to try to whittle down your credit card debt as much as possible because those rates are going to continue to go up. Mortgage rates continue to rise, too. Home sales have dropped for six straight months as potential buyers do the math and realize they can no longer afford to buy what they want. You know, that honeymoon ended and it's a different market today. As inflation remains at its highest level in four decades, consumer spending has stalled. It barely rose in July. Buyers are holding on to their money until prices finally start to fall again. Jennifer Johnson, Global News, Washington.
And Pakistan has declared a state of emergency and is asking for international help as severe flooding hits the country. Heavy rains have killed more than 100 people since mid-July. At least two dozen people have died in just the past 24 hours. Hundreds of homes, bridges and power plants have been destroyed in northern regions of the country. In the capital, residents are trapped as bridges are washed away. Officials are working with rescue crews to ramp up efforts to pull people to safety. In Health Matters tonight, a new study finds that people who get enough sleep have a lower risk of developing heart disease or having a stroke. French researchers studied the sleep habits of 7,200 people, and they found that 9 in 10 of all participants did not get a good night's sleep. They also found that those who got suboptimal sleep were at greater risk for cardiovascular disease and stroke. Experts say individuals who reported getting 7 to 8 hours of sleep every night, never or rarely having insomnia, and had no day time sleepiness were less likely to develop heart disease. That is compared to those who did not get enough sleep. Cyclists from across the province hit the streets of the Fraser Valley today to raise money for cancer research. Riders, are you ready? And they're off. 1,100 riders powered their way around three separate courses in and around Chilliwack and Abbotsford. This ride used to be called the Ride to Conquer Cancer. And this is the first time a road ride has taken place in three years. Riders have raised more than $6.3 million for the BC Cancer Foundation this year, which funds cancer research and improvements to patient care. Coming up, Yvonne and Squire join us, plus gearing up for Ironman. And it's been a long time coming, and it's so good to be back. For the first time in a decade, the grueling race returns to the Okanagan. We've got a preview of the epic triathlon. That's after the break. Stay with us. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. Welcome back. North Vancouver RCMP are taking the message of boating safety right to the water at Cates Park this weekend. The park is a popular launch point for boats headed up the Indian Arm. Officers spent the morning checking paperwork and informing boaters about their obligations and responsibilities as pleasure craft operators. It's the Mountie's third year at the park, convincing people that having a drink or taking a toke before hitting the water is a bad idea. Uh, impaired boating is a big deal. So... Um, not just when you're driving a vehicle, but also uh, when you're on a boat, you, you actually can't have any open alcohol or alcohol at all. So you'd be facing the same charge as you would as driving a vehicle. Uh, it just, uh, not, but you'd be facing the same impaired charges. Good advice. There might have been a bit of a breeze coming off the water today. Yvonne Shell is here now with a look at our forecast. Yvonne, good to see you. Yeah, and a bit cooler for many areas, mm. Sarah. We had a bit of a reprieve, and we're actually closer to the average where we, sit, where we should sit for this time of the year. So much need a break, I'm sure, for many across the province, and we're still seeing actually a breeze. Uh, south, southerly right now at 15, and we've got gusts just over 30 kilometers per hour. Current temperature to the airport underneath the partly cloudy sky sitting at 20 degrees. A few other highs across the province with snapshot with Lytton getting up to 22, lit in 28 degrees areas for the southern Okanagan closer to 25 in trail today topping out at 24 with Victoria seeing a daytime high of 18 degrees current temperatures right now with Kamloops at 23 golden at 16 and a current temperature for Tofino sitting at 18 degrees now the plan for Metro Vancouver will have a few clouds in the mix it remains dry temperatures will dip down to 15 degrees for an overnight low we're back into some sunshine through the day tomorrow temperatures up to 23 so low 30 20s rather 
rather. And with the humidex, it'll feel closer to 26 degrees, so pleasant for many areas and a touch cooler for areas that are closer to the water. The weather maker that we are tracking that's bringing a significant amount of rain will stay along the north and central coast. The rainfall there will see additional amounts tomorrow, and we could see anywhere between 50 and up to 70 millimeters, so the heaviest rain along coastal areas and inland and then drier for the northeastern corners of the province and much of the southern half tomorrow will be into the low 20s. So the bulk of the moisture, we can see that along the north coast. It'll continue through the day heavy at times with the areas showing us in yellow and orange. With yellow and orange, though, on the fire danger rating map, we've got high, so much of the province still blanketed for the northern and central regions and the eastern regions of the island sitting at extremes. So please be very diligent in the coming days. We're seeing a surge in temperatures once again, likely for Metro Vancouver to be Tuesday, Wednesday. We'll get into the low 30s, so be prepared. A bit of a reprieve once again for tomorrow, and then it ramps up once again in areas and towards the interior. We'll hang on to that heat, and that's Tuesday through Thursday, and then it dips down once again as we approach next weekend. Northern half of the province, rain and heavy at times, an additional 50 and up to 70 millimeters for tomorrow. Dry for the northeastern corners. Could see a few isolated showers still popping up across the central interior. The southern half, though, into the 20s with that sunshine, dry conditions. Whistler topping out at 21 degrees. Bit more cloud cover along the northern tip of Vancouver Island. A few isolated showers, a clearing for the afternoon. Metro Vancouver and along the south coast, it'll be pleasant as we look ahead into early next week. Likely Tuesday, Wednesday, heats up once again with temperatures away from from the water up to 30 degrees. Sarah. Okay, Yvonne, thank you. And a lot of triathletes will be keeping an eye on the heat tomorrow with thousands of people descending on Penticton this weekend for the return of the Ironman Triathlon on Sunday. As Jaden Wozni reports, the city is hosting the competition for the first time in 10 years. The wait is finally over. Athletes from all over the world are getting set to compete in the 2022 Subaru Ironman this Sunday in Penticton. This is the first time in 10 years the city has hosted this event. It's the community here in Penticton that makes this, this race so special. I mean, obviously the course is fantastic, but it's really the community and the volunteers and how much everybody rallies around and supports the athlete, which makes this such a special event. Athletes will start things off by swimming 3.8 kilometers in Okanagan Lake, followed by a 180-kilometer bike ride around the South Okanagan and a 42-kilometer run to finish things off. Those competing are already getting excited for the big day. I was here in 2012 uh, for the last time that Ironman Canada was here in Penticton. I drove up from Edmonton to volunteer, slept in my van for three days, had a great time, and it's been a long time coming and it's so good to be back. Keon Sunderji was just nine years old when the last Ironman was held in Penticton, watching his dad from the sidelines. Now the 19-year-old is set to compete alongside his dad. Uh, just trying to do, do my best and do uh, my personal best, um, and whether that's time or whether that's uh, effort or maybe for the bike or for the run, whatever it might be, I'm just looking to have fun and do my, the best I can on that day. This year's event wouldn't be possible without volunteers like Charlotte Sheriff. This is her 14th year volunteering at Ironman in Penticton, and she is thrilled to see all the athletes back in her home city. I always take the last shift on the last run, because those are the people, when they're coming down that finish line, it's just great. And they're thanking us as much as we're cheering them on. It's, it's just great. Jaden Wozni, Global News, Penticton. Okay, those are amazing athletes, clearly. Yeah. That is true. <laughs> 
Good luck to them. Squire Barnes joining us for a special one-day appearance Saturday. Good to see you, Squire, as always. Well, Barry needed the day off. For some reason, he wouldn't tell me what it was. Maybe he's doing the Iron Man tomorrow. He's prepping I tomorrow. highly doubt that. Because <laughs> you're back, you're not here tomorrow? Are you Although sure? I think, you know, I think Barry does do the gross grind. He does. Which is he does still, twice a week. to me, impressive. And mm -hmm. he has good times. I'm not going to reveal his time, but he's got, <laughs> he told me he hit his best time the other day. So. All right. Very impressive. It starts with a four. Okay. I say that. He's got Square good capacity. Speaking okay. about the Lions tonight, I believe. What's coming well, that was Well, uh, that was painful to watch last night, and I mean that in many ways because a number of Lions got hurt. They suddenly are all getting hurt now, the BC Lions. They lost to Saskatchewan. We'll talk about that. We'll show you, um, oh, the Seahawks have decided who their number one quarterback will be this year as well. We'll reveal that. Oh, very interesting. Looking forward to that. Yvonne Bear, uh, Squire, sorry, we'll see you soon. Coming up, ready for liftoff. You look out at our team, and it is a different makeup. And that's a great thing. The modern-day mission to return to the moon and how this one is very different from Apollo a half-century later. That's after the break. Stay with us. Global BC wants to see you at the PNE Fair. Catch all the fun at this end of summer tradition, from attractions and entertainment to food and rides, and the stories that make it all come alive. The PNE Fair, in partnership with Global BC. Welcome back. Well, next week, NASA plans to launch the Artemis rocket from Florida's Kennedy Space Center as part of the space agency's first step to return to the moon. The launch pad for the rocket was struck by lightning this morning, though, and now engineers are doing an analysis of the strike to see if it will affect Monday's planned launch. It's been 50 years since Mission Control in Houston last guided a lunar landing, and clearly since then, much has changed. It's got to be one of the most proud moments of my life. To wonder is to wonder. Golly, this time goes fast. Apollo's spectral images of space wanderers moonwalking helped define the 20th century. Fast forward a half century. Artemis, NASA's first attempt to return people to the moon. Where do you start? You just dust off the old Apollo manuals? <laughs> you know, a lot of our guys did. The guys Rick LeBrode, Artemis One's lead flight yeah. director, took us inside the old Apollo mission control. By today's standards, NASA reached the moon using paltry technology, analog everything, rotary dial phones, and slide rules. It's kind of mind-boggling when you think about it. So we're all set for op nav. This is the Artemis mission control in Houston. No one working in here, LeBrode included, has ever worked on a moonshot that could carry astronauts. The launch is game time. It's, it's going to be very different. And, uh, you, know, uh, you know, you hear the pucker factor. It'll be there. Also there on launch pad 39B in Florida, the SLS rocket. It stands 322 feet tall, NASA's most powerful rocket ever, at liftoff, firing nearly 9 million pounds of thrust. This is the Orion mock-up here. On top, the center. Artemis crew capsule called Orion. Do you have room for four people rather than three people yeah. with Apollo? Correct. We're going to take four people back and forth to the moon, and we are also intending to fly those four people for longer periods of time. Another big difference, NASA's moonshot team. For Apollo 11, white guys wearing white shirts and skinny ties. One woman in the room, the lone exception. You look out at our team, and it is a different makeup. And that's a great thing. MTD launch director. Charlie Blackwell-Thompson, hardly the only woman in Artemis launch control, but in a sense, she's the woman. It's going to change the way we explore. 
Artemis II builds on what we learn in Artemis I, and then Artemis III puts boots back on the moon. On this test flight, Artemis will send Orion into a distant lunar orbit, reaching roughly 40,000 miles beyond the moon, the most distant point ever for a spaceship that can carry humans. The mission will last 42 days before a splashdown in the Pacific. Like the SLS rocket, the stakes for NASA are huge. We got to have a successful flight before we put the astronauts on the next mission. Otherwise, you're not putting astronauts on the next, next mission. For NASA, today the moon, tomorrow Mars. Discover resources and know-how for sustained living in deep space. Coming up, Squire Barnes is here with sports, plus historic homecoming. The Stanley Cup on Canadian soil, why this visit stands out from the rest. That's in just a few minutes. Stay with us. Join Global BC, CKNW, and Rock 101 in supporting Recovery Day. Join thousands on September 10th to raise awareness, reduce stigma while connecting with healthcare service providers, enjoying family fun, and listening to great music, including Tom Cochran, Snotty Nose Res Kids, and more. Unleash your inner paleontologist at Science World. At T-Rex, the ultimate predator, walk through the world millions of years ago and discover a new story about the T-Rex, how it lived, hunted, and thrived in its environment for millennia. If you want to know, it's on the house. If you want to show, it's on the house. If you want to go, it's on the Global BC Community Hub. Navigate your now. Welcome back. All right. Squire is here, which is why we're laughing, of course, okay. during the commercial break. Take it away. Lions. Yes. Lions. Bad news. Bad news. Well, yeah. bad news multiplied, actually. Uh, wow. In the last week, playing quarterback for the BC Lions moved way up in the list of most dangerous jobs in the world, falling somewhere now between test pilot and bull riding. Last week, Nathan Rourke got hurt. Last night, Michael O'Connor got hurt. And BC had to play most of the game with their third-string quarterback, Antonio Pipkin. Now, the Lions lost to Saskatchewan, not by much. Their defense played well, but they lost 23-16. But all these injuries seem to stun the Lions in the submission against a team they so easily beat the week before. Except for maybe Michael Bublé's kids, anybody wearing orange at BC Place was in danger last night. Starting with quarterback Michael O'Connor, whose leg or groin injury at least doesn't seem as serious as Nathan Rourke's foot injury. It doesn't look like a devastating injury, but more of a um, you know growing hamstring, that type issue. So I think it just bothered him as it went on. I don't think it was a specific event. But it meant that Antonio Pipkin had to take over the offense. And he's normally a guy whose job is just to run short yardage situations. Last night he had to throw, which is something he had not had to do since last season when he played for Toronto. Um, that's a tough, tough situation to come in. He knows, he knows what he's doing and he knows the offense, but he literally has very, very limited reps practicing and obviously not not playing. It was no surprise that Pipkin was a bit rusty, but he did not throw an interception, and he did throw a touchdown pass to Jacob Scarfone. He also had some close calls with Dominique Rimes. And he also had the play without receiver Lucky Whitehead, who got hurt in the third quarter with a hamstring problem. We believe in absolutely everybody in the locker room, from top to bottom. So whenever someone's called upon, we, we pride ourselves in Nothing stops, the show doesn't stop. The good news is the Lions don't play next week, so Michael O'Connor and everybody else who got hurt against the Riders will have some time to heal. 
And that was pretty much the message from Rick Campbell after the game. We need to take advantage of this bye week. Um, it comes at a good time, and we need to get guys um, um, as healthy as they can be, both uh, mentally and physically, um, to play a lot of important football coming up. The Seattle Seahawks quarterback battle is over. Not that it was a battle that inspired a lot of confidence in the 12s, but veteran Geno Smith, who was the backup for Russell Wilson last year, was given the starting job over Drew Locke, who came over from Denver in the Russell Wilson trade. Locke played a lot of the final preseason game last night against Dallas, but he threw three interceptions. Smith, I think, seems like a safer choice to Pete Carroll. He's earned it. Uh, he's won the job uh, with the time and the time frames that got messed up for us for Drew. Drew did, just didn't, he just ran out of time in making his bid for it. Drew's got to keep on battling because he can play and he's got, he's got all kinds of stuff in him and, and I want him to be ready at uh, the moment's call. And uh, he's going he's gonna to keep growing and pushing and, and, and developing as a fantastic player, I think, and, and I have no problem playing with him too. Vancouver Whitecaps are home tonight. Nashville's in town at the moment. The Whitecaps are ninth in the West. Top seven make the playoffs. But as long as the Whitecaps can win their home games, their chances of making the playoffs are pretty good. Thomas Assal will start in goal tonight. And most of the main players will be available to play for Vancouver. Women's World Hockey Championships are going on in Denmark. Canada today was taking on the Swiss. This was a game Canada was expected to win, and they did not disappoint. Sarah Fillier. Swiss had only three shots on goal in the first period. This was the opening goal for Canada to make it 1 0. And Fillier would score a second goal in the second period. Giveaway. Fillier makes some pay. Shots were 33-4 Canada after two. Just to show you how dominant the Canadians were, Emily Clark will score here. So Canada wins it 4-1. They outshot the Swiss 46-8 when all was said and done. And tomorrow, Canada has a game against Japan, another one that Canada should be able to win. Blue Jays celebrating the world championship from 1992. A lot of all the old favorites are there, including Joe Carter. Shohei Otani pitching for the Angels against the Jays. He had quite an outing. Nine strikeouts in seven innings. Luis Renifo will drive in David Fletcher to make it 1-0 in the sixth. The Angels would hold on for a 2-0 win over the Jays. Okay, Brooke Henderson. A lot of cheers at the third round of the Canadian Women's Open, but not a lot of birdies. She had a rough day. Two over 73. She has 13 shots off the lead. Uh, Naren on. And H.J. Choi share the lead at 16-under. This is Choi on the 17th. Nice chip here. The men's tour championship, they couldn't finish the third round because of a weather issue. Issue make that. They'll uh, finish things up tomorrow. Okay, I want to show you this. Liverpool today finally won a game in the EPL. And they did it emphatically. 9-0 over Bournemouth. Harvey Elliott with a goal there. Trent Alexander-Arnold. Nice goal here. That ties the... Uh, Premier League record for biggest victory, 9-0. 9-0, holy cow. I know. Speaking of victories after the break, the Cup comes to Canada. We'll head to Ontario for a very momentous moment. Stay with us. 
Welcome back. There's perhaps no bigger moment in a hockey player's life than bringing the Stanley Cup to their hometown, as Squire and I were just talking about. It's been here in BC recently, right? That's right. Bowen Byron brought it to Cranbrook. Okay, okay. So the Calgary Flames' Nazem Kadri made history in his hometown of London, Ontario today. He's the first Muslim and Lebanese Canadian to hoist the cup after he won it for the first time with the Colorado Avalanche this past season. And as Ahmad Khan reports, today's celebration was meaningful for more reasons than one. A first in hockey history. Nazim Qadri hosting the Stanley Cup, walking to the London Muslim Mosque as the first Muslim and Lebanese Canadian to win the trophy. You know, to be the first person, it's an absolute privilege and an honor uh, to be able to, to bring this to my community and my hometown. The moment was extra special for Munir El Qasim, the Imam at the Masjid. Last year, tragedy hit the Muslim community in London when the Afzal family was killed in a terror attack, leaving four dead. Today was a moment to celebrate. Today, we are going from that chapter of the tragedy into a chapter of ease. Kadri says coming to the masjid was first on his list. So grateful I've given, been given this opportunity and this platform and you know the supporters I have is uh, just just makes me very grateful. Kadri, Kadri, Kadri. The celebrations continued Kadri, Kadri, Kadri. with a parade to Victoria to thousands of fans and Lebanon flags flying. Kadri was also awarded the key to the city. You know, it's still surreal and, you know, today has kind of been a, um, you know, a bit of a hectic day, but I've been able to take in every single moment of it and uh, it's something I'll never forget. For family members, they say that Nazem did everything to ensure this journey was for the entire Kadri clan. He's a family man. He, uh, he takes care of his family. We're his cousins and we see him when we can and it's absolutely amazing that he's able to incorporate all of us in this uh, celebration. As music blasts and there's Kadri jerseys everywhere as thousands of fans wait for photos and signatures in Victoria Park, Kadri says it was important for him to celebrate this milestone with his community that supported him through the good and tough times. The Khan family drove from Oshawa to see the celebrations. Embreen Khan says seeing a Muslim win the cup is important, especially for her daughter who plays, noting that Muslim women, especially who wear the hijab, sports can be extra challenging. Seeing someone that is going to represent us is a big deal. We don't see that very often. This really is a motivation for them. For others, it means they can try things outside their cultural norms. That representation is definitely inspiring, not just to me, but to so many other people who want to get involved in their communities, who want to try something they've never tried before, playing hockey. And while he's inspiring others, Kadri isn't done quite yet. We're going to try to run this thing back, and I'm going to Calgary to get the job done. Amar Khan, Global News. Well, looks like a great day. That's all for us tonight. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you right back here at 11.